Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Criminology Academy, where we're criminally academic. My name is Jose Sanchez. And my name is Jen Toslieb. Today's episode is part of our Grad Life series. And we have three guests on the podcast, Professors Alondra Garza, Sadaf Hashimi, and Thad Johnson, to talk with us about their experiences on the academic job market. Alondra Garza is an incoming assistant professor in the Department of Criminal Justice at the University of Central Florida and a member of the Violence Against Women faculty research cluster. She received her PhD in criminal justice from Sam Houston State University in May 2022. Her research interests include victimology, violence against women, and the criminal legal system's response to victimization. In 2021, she was selected as Ruth D. Peterson Fellow by the American Society of Criminology, and her work has appeared in Crime and Delinquency, Journal of Interpersonal Violence, and Violence Against Women, among others. Sadaf Hashimi is an assistant professor at the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Nebraska-Omaha. She received her PhD from the School of Criminal Justice at Rutgers University in 2021 and her master's from the School of Criminology at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, Canada. Currently, her research focuses on understanding how our peers shape our criminal trajectories. Her most recent work has been funded by the Department of Homeland Security and the National Collaborative on Gun Violence Research and has appeared in outlets including the Journal of Research in Crime and Delinquency, Justice Quarterly, Journal of Quantitative Criminology and Criminology and Public Policy. Thaddeus Johnson, a former ranking law enforcement official in Memphis, Tennessee, is an assistant professor of criminal justice and criminology at Georgia State University. He received his PhD in criminal justice and criminology from Georgia State University in 2020. His current research focuses on police policy and innovations, urban violence, crime control, and racially desperate justice outcomes. He is the author of numerous articles in a book entitled Deviance Among Physicians, Fraud, Violence, and the Power to Prescribe. Thank you, Alondra, Steph, and Thad for joining us today. We really appreciate you being here with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. All right. So as Jose noted, today we're talking about all things academic job market, including prepping for the market, interview and job talks, negotiation and job offers, and the summer before starting your first job. I also want to note that Sadaf sent a fantastic article entitled 123 Frequently Asked Academic Job Interview Questions, which we're going to post on our website for everyone to see. So Jose, I will let you get us started. Okay, great. All right. So you have finally arrived to the point where you're ready to go on the job market, right? So let's first start off by talking about what year you were in, in your PhD program and how ready did you feel (laughs) to enter the job market? Did any of you do like what we call a soft year? So maybe like testing the waters, but not fully committing to getting a job. I mean, I'll probably say that, you know, (laughs) probably ever since I entered the program, I'll consider myself on the job market. Right. You know, with the conferences and relationships and really trying to capitalize on all those opportunities. And so I guess I had put the work in to be ready for a soft market. You know, I was always had this thing here. So I'll put it in. And just to add to that, I think so much of my experience was really shaped by COVID and the mm-hmm. pandemic. And I was going on the job market during the 2020, 2021 year. And so COVID had just started. We were pre-vaccine times. So I'd done all the motions that summer to get on the job market. So I had all my statements ready and all of that. 
but personally, I did not feel ready. I was just come September. I had everything and I'm like, I'm a mess. No one's going to hire me. This is going to be a terrible year. And it just, you just heard so much about how there were so many hiring freezes. So you're writing your statements, but at the same time, you're like, am I even going to get a job? Right. So I did everything that was necessary, but personally, I just did not feel like I was as shaped to be on the market or not, but I didn't have that soft year either. Things luckily worked out. I got my stuff together. (laughs) So I was on the market this last cycle. So after the COVID cycle, so fall 2021, spring 2022, starting the fourth year of my PhD, I think early on in my PhD, I decided I was going to pursue academia. And I think by that time, I felt like I had a competitive CV. It is what it is. I tried to plan in terms of how my dissertation was sort of going along. Some of the socialization I received was that unless your prospectus is defended, people aren't going to think you're going to finish. And so to me, I had defended my first three chapters before I submitted any application and starting in August. So that's a little bit about what my timeline looked like as an ABD. I had started my dissertation at the end of my third year all the way through the summer. And then come June, July, my statements were sort of ready to go and just took the market for what it was. And so no soft year either. Yeah, that's something that I've always heard too. Sorry, Jose, but I did like a soft year last year. I was definitely not at all ready, but I just kind of wanted to test the water and see what it was like and try and put everything together. But I hadn't defended my prospectus. I hadn't done any of that. And my advisor was like, good luck. I mean, cool for you, but I'm here for you, but good luck. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. I thought about doing a soft year. So my plan was to actually just go on the market this year and not come back. But summer didn't quite go the way I was hoping it would. And I ended up kind of falling behind a little bit. And yeah, my advisor kind of mentioned maybe doing a soft year. I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like if some miracle happens and someone does like want to fly me out and offer me a job, I don't know that I would be able to crank it out like in such short amount of time. So I'm just going to, I just decided to kind of come back another year and not try to break myself trying to get everything done. But yeah. So how many jobs did you all apply to? Did you apply to multiple or did you just like, I'm going to like apply to this one job and kind of just put all my eggs in that one basket? Or did you like organize all the jobs that you were maybe thinking about applying to and kind of what that process looked like? So for me, again, very pandemic, very hiring freeze. So a lot of my experiences was just shaped on that. Like there were maybe a handful of job announcements when I went on the market and that from September to January, September to November. And of that handful, I think there were two that I was even considering because I had a really different mentality. I didn't want to just apply for the point of applying. And I know a lot of people do that. And I don't necessarily think that's a wrong thing. I think my advisors at one point got really frustrated with me. They're like, you can't afford to be this picky during this year. I was just like, I can't, I can't move there. I can't do this. And they're like, oh, like, it's cute that you think you have that luxury of choice. <laughs> so I ended up applying very, very, very few places, like very few places. And it worked out. But at the same time, I a lot of jobs came out after I got hired. So I got hired in November 
And in January, there's just these waves of jobs that I'm like, oh, had that been in September or had that been in August, things would have looked a lot different for me. No, and I'll say too, and I forgot to mention this earlier, I navigated the market the 2020 year. So the year, I guess, everything is shut down and jobs were still from the past budgets. And so that still was there. The prior years when I did all my talks and all the applications in and things like that. So that's the thing, you know, about being ready. You're being ready while you're defending your dissertation. You just finished a comp. So, you know, it's, it's very difficult, but everything is really fresh. You should be able to articulate what it is that you want to do. So I know traditionally R1 jobs came open late summer, top of the fall to try it before ASC. But, you know, you mentioned I got lucky. It came in right before the market changed. Like they have jobs might pop up in May, might pop up in March, right? And so I applied when I was going through six editions. You know, a couple of things to this, you know, four, I, I built relationships the whole time, right? So four of these places I had relationships with, I had gone and done talks with students. I had done research with those people. And so they knew my work and they knew who I was as a person. I think oftentimes we forget that, oh, it's about our work, it's about our work. Yeah, but it's about who you are as a person and how can you grow the promise. And they're not hiring you who you are today. They're hiring you who you are five years, 10 years down the road. And so I took two dream positions I applied for, said, hey, I'm going to do it. But we have to also remember our recommenders are applying. We apply for 10 jobs, there's 10 letters. And whether they have four or five students, right? And that's a lot of work. So I think you can be picky. And, you know, you work this hard not to just take anything you can get, right? I get it. Economics, you get a job, one of these things, you feel desperate. But you often forget that you're an asset, that they're lucky to have you, not just the other way around. And so... Yeah, of those places, I'm working the place that I got my doctorate in. My wife and I both navigated together, and we'll talk about some of those issues you asked about competing against friends. Who imagine yeah. competing against your own wife, right? right. But, you know, so we were blessed in, in how things worked out. We're in the same department now, but it took us starting and, and planting those seeds from day one. We got into that position because we knew what we wanted to do. So, yeah, I only applied for six. Four, I was strongly encouraged to, and I had uh, talks at, uh, at those four. Yeah, and I'm here, so it did work out. Yeah, I like that you both mentioned sort of being a little bit selective. I think a lot of socialization that you may get as grad students, like apply everywhere, heard people apply like upwards of 20, 30 jobs. But at the end of the day, like I decided the type of institution and location mattered and location was not negotiable. I applied to only places in the South. Academia can take you away from your friends and your family if you let it and you don't have to negotiate that like if that's your non-negotiable be okay with it at the end of the day you have to be happy with your life and your job and where you're at and where you're working right so for me I was in a much healthier job cycle I think there was a lot of places that were hiring this past year a lot of assistants some open positions as well I only applied to nine jobs so I don't know if it's like a hit rate so I applied to nine jobs I did seven initial interviews And I got six campus visits, but I only did three of them because of how timing and offers worked out. And we can talk a little bit more about how it's kind of like a gamble, I guess, when you, the timing of how things are working out with offers and you kind of have to play your cards to the best that you can. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. You know, I I don't know how many of you are, I think Sadaf and Alondra, you're both on Twitter. So I'm sure you've seen this, that I don't know if you're on the Twitterverse as well. But, you know, I see people tweeting, like, I've applied to 90 jobs. I'm like, yeah. what? That just seems so, like, exhausting, like, mentally exhausting, emotionally exhausting. Like, I don't know that I could do 
that how do you even do that right like even well, people that say and, 20 or 30 jobs like that just sounds like so much and Thad's point too I'm pretty sure my advisor and Jose's advisor are the same I think he would shoot us if we applied to 90 jobs so yeah just the work for him alone but yeah yeah All right. So a few of you have mentioned this, but just thinking about the job market kind of beginning in September, roughly, when did you have your materials prepared, your CV, cover letter, your statements, et cetera? And do you have any tips for preparing these materials? I can go. So I knew I was going to go on the market right that fall. So probably June, July, I started drafting what I knew were going to be sort of expected. So fix your CV, a cover letter, a research statement, a teaching statement, a diversity statement is what I had sort of drafts ready to go. And then I think maybe a few places ask for like transcripts or supplementary materials. But I think for the most part, those are the items that I had drafted come August, sort of had been reviewed by several people. And I had reached out to sort of other grad students who had just gone on the market. And I think people are so gracious to share their materials. I'm happy to share my materials with anybody that reached out to me with you both. And so that's kind of what that looked like. And I had created an Excel sheet to where it had tiers. So tier one were jobs that I'm definitely applying to. Tier two was, uh, I could be interested in tier three is like, they're hiring, but I'm definitely not applying. That was good for me to sort jobs and sort of be able to see like, okay, this is what I guess my odds are looking like I'm going to apply to this many. And so that sort of filtering process in the Excel sheet, I found helpful because I also just created columns of like by due dates and what information do you need for each and who is the point of contact, who's the search chair. And so I feel like that helped me sort of filter where I was interested and what I needed for that place. I'll jump in. Yeah. You know, and this kind of ties in the last point, you know, we're talking about how many jobs we apply for. And I think, you know, one thing you want to make sure you do is also identify places that have similar values that you have, right? Places that are like open assets and low cost materials for our students. Like I refuse to let those things get in the way I've been there, right? You have online and hybrid modalities. What's the student body like? So that's how we kind of identify. Are you talking about the materials? I mean, you know, luckily we have a graduate orientation class. So after my first semester, I had a CV. It was bare bones. It was ugly, not impressive. I hate looking at it right right now. All right. But we started that process. Also, you know, if you're writing for scholarships and grants, right, you know, I'm a non-traditional student in both, you know, my life experience and what I look like. And so you kind of have a lot of those statements kind of prepared. I will say that you need to probably write several statements. You need to write the teaching DEI statement and also your research statement individually. And then have one that's composite that says everything because it's just variable on the market. And it can be frustrating, right? Just like with journal uh, submissions, like, damn, can we just have one type of modality to make it easier on everyone? And so those are things that I did. But I will say after your comps start waking up, it gets real. You don't want to be an ABD forever, right? It can be purgatory, right? Like, oh, I'm almost good enough. And that's what it looks like. You know, other things come into play, right? So start writing those statements and be truthful right? Be truthful. If you have deficiencies, be honest about it. If you hadn't thought about that virtually, you know, look, I'm a black guy, and you know, oh, you know, downtrodden, we have this, you know, historical aspects. But, you know, my wife, she's a black woman too, and it's different. Her experiences in life and in academia. And so that's something that I shared, that I had learned and grown 
I shared that in my statements. And so be transparent in those statements. I mean, sometimes those statements can be the tiebreaker between you and somebody who has the grace with these recommendation letters, has the grace or have great publication records. Sometimes they're looking at the person. And so you don't want to rush it. You want to take your time and start there early because it's obvious when you're rushing, right? Particularly with the DEI move, it's more, probably more talk oftentimes and ask for action, but you know, you still need to provide meaningful and talk about your students, right? Don't forget to talk about your students in your statements, right? So that's one thing that I will say. Talk about your whole self and just be prepared. You can use these same documents to prepare for grants, or you may want to find a better job, right? So those are the things that I would kind of say ideas preparing. And just to quickly add on that, I also started in the summer. I started pretty early because I had known from previous years that some universities just don't ask for that base package anymore. They ask for a lot of statements. And Mm -hmm. for me, I wanted to go into September now having things as ready as I could, because you're still working on your dissertation. You're still doing research, you're teaching, you're busy, you have a life. And that last year is absolutely just, it's on another level. It's stressful. It's exciting because you're so close, but at the same time, you're so busy. And if you have kids, it gets even busier. And so I really just wanted as much of that off of my list come fall as I could. But I also wanted to add that a lot, it took me a really long time that summer. And it was because I took a lot of time that summer to just reflect on my own research agenda and identity. And I think that was the first time as a student, I really thought about, hey, like I have these research interests, but I do social networks. And for me, things could get out of line real quick. Like I don't just study one substantive area. And so my advisor at that time had been putting it in my head since first year, like, what is your identity? What is your research identity? And that summer for me was sitting down and being like, this is my research identity. This is my narrative. This is my understanding of who I am, where I want to be. So of course, as dad was saying, they don't hire you for who you are now, but in 10, 15 years. And what was really important to me as a scholar in the discipline too. So like race and ethnicity, the kind of department I wanted to put myself in, the kind of colleagues I wanted to be in. And it just took me a long time. And I think that all tied into why I really applied to such few places too, because that summer, although it took more time than I had wanted, it was really clear for me. It helped me write my statements. I sat down, I thought about it, and it also helped me hone in on what was really important to me because it put things in perspective and it really allowed me to identify places and calls that would work for me and were good matches and other places and calls that are great, but it'd be great for someone else and not necessarily the best fit for me. Can I just real quickly add to that? I know we're talking about on the market, but these are habits to take when you come on as a, I hate the term junior faculty, but you all know what I mean, right? As an untenured faculty, right? Because you're going to need these things for your dossier. So you want to make sure that you're always, and my wife always wants me on this, if you don't wait till the end of semester, if you have something happen, a presentation, a talk, a publication, if it's an R&R, you change, do that right then, right there. Because it's hard to, at the end of semester, the end of the year, three years, put these things together. So I would just say, you know, take these good habits and continue building on them regularly so you have these things handily available. It's not a stressful aspect each time you have It was really awesome when I was a master's student. Like my advisor was great at SFU. He would, every time we would do something, he'd be like, put it on your CV and let's go celebrate. (laughs) So it'd give us Mm -hmm. incentive to put it on our CV. Don't forget that we've done it. And then we'd go celebrate because I honestly, I have students now and like no 
accomplishment is little. Everything like, let's go have some coffee. Mm -hmm. Let's go celebrate. Let's go send an email out. Just feel good about yourself. There's so many reasons to doubt yourself in academia that it was maybe even a guest lecture. And he's like, let's do this. Let's go celebrate. I'm like, you're awesome. This is great. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) All right. Let's start moving a little forward in the process. So we've prepped for the job. Well, you've prepped for the job market. And so now we're at the point where you have received an invitation to move forward. And oftentimes, or always, I suppose, the first stage of the interview process is like an initial interview. Alondra, you mentioned having some of these, which can take place over the phone or Zoom. How did you all prepare for this sort of initial interview? I'll jump in, screw it, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, you just know, you know, I know we're all trying to figure out who goes, who goes, can't double this, right? So yes. It's, it's all good. So don't think that's because I'm just trying to take over. Just know, I don't mind <laughs> jumping in there. So I will say that I had a couple of Zoom calls, some are just phone calls, right? But one thing that I did was sometimes you know who you're speaking to, right? So say, oh, you know, you'll be contacted by so-and-so, so-and-so. And sometimes you don't know. And so what you have to do is be prepared. Understand who you're talking to, understand who you're working with, find out who does similar research. And if you do similar research, how does yours stand out? And how can you bring collaboration to add to the field? I started looking at, do they have any initiatives that's historical immersion as far as are they moving to online? Are they moving to open access materials? Are they moving to low cost materials? Do they move toward more inclusion? Things that you really value or you can ask them about, or I'm not saying pressure them, but some of these things are important, right? Also, you want to talk about being prepared to understand their processes, right? If there was a big grant, I mean, not if there's been some scandal or something, you don't want to bring that up, but you want to kind of have those things in the back of your mind to know if they raise those things, if they're going to be transparent, look at your leader. Has there been turnover in the leadership in the school with your dean, the president, and particularly your department with your chair, right? You want to be able to have, you want to know what you're going into. Yeah. And I will say too, when I went in, I had an elevator talk prepared because you're not giving your full talk. But they want to know about your research. They want to know what motivates your research. What puts you there? Why this idea? Why not that idea? And you're really having a conversation. But the more confident you are, the more you know your stuff. If you're able to talk about, well, you know, this is my one-year plan, my two-year plan, my five-year plan. This is my pathway. It may get thrown off. But they want to see that you actually have a plan. You want to know, do they have internal funding? You can ask these questions. But you want to kind of have an idea for research and startups and these types of things. And be prepared to explain what your needs are, right? You know, I'm going to use secondary data for my first couple of years, and then I want to build on that to raise a data collection and get funding. You want to at least be able, it may not come to fruition, but, you know, that's the game. And you want to make sure that you at least have direction because the one thing that they want to see is they don't have to hold our hand. And if we have to hold somebody's hand, they're not going to make it past that cut. They're looking for a colleague, not a child, right? <laughs> not someone to raise. And so, yeah, I'll shut up with that. Yeah. I guess I'll say that at least this last cycle, all of my initial interviews were on Zoom. I don't know if maybe that was the norm before COVID, right? I think maybe folks had had phone calls before. And I think that can be a little bit more dicey because you don't necessarily see who's all on the call. I think in terms of format, like everything like was so important for me to sort of get demystified. So I think this episode's really great. I'd say that all of my initial interviews were probably about 30, 40 minutes. So not super long. I will say also, I'm the type of person, like I don't answer my phone. If a number calls me and I don't know the number, like I'm not (laughs) going to answer. 
if you're on the job market, you should probably answer your phone. So <laughs> answer your phone. So yeah, most interviews are about 30-ish minutes. I'd say in my experience, there was anywhere from three to five people. Whenever I would get an invitation, I would study all the faculty. I printed out all their CVs, learned where they graduated from, had sort of like a tidbit that I could talk about with that particular person. But I was sort of prepared to answer some questions that I think came up in almost every initial interview, which were, tell us about yourself. And to me, that was not like a research question. I didn't approach it like that. I said, hey, this is where I grew up. This is who I am. Like, this is how I stumbled into academia. Like, that was me as a person, which that you you talked about. So I was ready to talk about that. And then tell us about your research course. Tell us about your dissertation as an ABD. People want to make Mm -hmm. sure that you're going to graduate. So that was always asked in initial interviews. What's your five-year plan? And why are you interested in us? And then sometimes what classes do you see yourself teaching? Who would you collaborate with? I would say those questions were always pretty much standard for my initial interviews. And then I also had my own questions that I asked because at the end they'll say, do you have questions? And you don't want to say, no, I don't, because they might think you're disinterested or maybe weren't engaged. And so I think always be prepared to have some questions that you generally are important to you. I would ask, how do you see me fitting into your department, right? What's the department been like? What does the next five years look like in terms of growth? What attributes do you look for in a colleague? And for me, I would end with like a fun question. So I'd say, you know, can everyone tell me like, if you had to pick one thing, what's your favorite thing about working at the university of like, blah, 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 or et cetera. And so that was kind of fun because we ended on like a high note or it was happy and it was personable. So that's kind of my approach to the initial interview process. So for me, for that initial interview, again, nervous wreck, it happened really quick for me. I applied and then a few days later, I just got that call and then I was interviewing within the week. And this was me having no idea what I was going into. So I was a little bit more calculated. I will say I am thankful for my peers. I had a few people who had already successfully gone through the market. So the amount of text that those individuals got within that week was insane. Mm -hmm. And the amount of text they replied to every time I see them and I'm like, I owe you a drink. I owe you 20 drinks because I just had no idea what I was going into that initial. It was a Zoom interview essentially, it was only 20 minutes though, but there's nothing anyone could have told me at that time to have calmed me down. Because essentially, this was my first interview, as I'd like to call myself an adult. And there were, I just didn't know what to expect. And so after turning to them, they kind of calmed me down. They're okay, this is what I went through. These are the questions I kind of responded to. And I answered, there are lots of sleepless nights. So what I did was I went on the Chronicle of Higher Education, and I read a lot of blogs. I read a lot of do's and don'ts. And even the questions that I sent you, the one, two, three questions, Mm -hmm. I found it, I think at like 3am because I was like, I don't know (laughs) what I'm going to say to these people. Like, I know who I am as a scholar. I know what my contributions are, but I'm not really good. Sometimes when people just ask me a Mm -hmm. question, like I can't just think of it right off the bat. So I knew what my weaknesses were. And I just went around that, but very, very calculated and very, very systematic. And the one thing I would recommend, and I think everyone recommends this, is really look up that university, really research that university, that department, as well as the folks that were interviewing you. So I had three people on the call on that Zoom interview, and I knew two of them I was pretty familiar with. One, I just like looked through everything. 
and really look through the location too. I know I ended off my Zoom interviews, the initial interview with, how is it like being in Omaha? (laughs) And that was just my thing because I'm like, I'm genuinely curious. Like I need to know how it's like for you to live there. And so it looked a little bit different than the full interview, but the nerves were really there. I feel like that's going to be me. I'm sorry. I just want to build this so bad. I'm so sorry. I know you have this other question going forward. No, go ahead. But but I thought that's so great. You know, you talked about, I'm not not sure where you are, but the housing prices have gone crazy and they were doing that before, right? Since the Super Bowl has been here several years back. And so one question you want to be prepared, do the professors, do they rent? Do they own? They live in the city? They live in the suburb? They live live out in the sticks, right? You know, and that gives you an idea of like, okay, like the cost of living in the pay aspects, right? You also want to know the economic trends and where you're going. I think that was a great point that you raised you want to kind of know those things. And since I'm running my mouth, I'll go ahead and just say a couple other things that, that you asked them. You know, you want to ask them about their personal successes and failures in academia in that department. Mm-hmm. And was it because of some resource related or was it just, you know, screwed up as a personal thing or it's just a game, right? And I talked about asking about those research and funding opportunities. But importantly, too, what type of journals and work do you value? What type of service, community service, department service, do you value? Ask them their feelings about work-life balance. They view the faculty as being people or just a damn cog in a bigger machine, right? And then I would say, you know, ask them, I think I said this already, but ask them about their philosophies and reform around teaching service and these things because, you know, some places are simply account. Some places, if you only pub in these things, you're only being worthy. You know, I'm not really leaning that way. You know, good research is research no matter where it's at. And so it's just, you know, I just wanted to hear some of those things to get a feel for, am I going into the old way of thinking, the old regime, or are we going somewhere that's more progressive and I can see myself growing in this place? And so, yeah, those are just questions, but you really got me started when you're talking about the actual location that you're in. Yeah. That's a big question that, you know, don't ask about. You got this job, you're great. Now, where the hell are you going to live? Can you afford to buy a car? Can you, you know, can you afford to eat? Now you're the, you're the homeless professor. Nobody wants to be that guy. And so, you know, uh, that was so important to raise that. All right. Just, just. No, and financially, that's so important too, because I did Rutgers. So I was in Jersey. So I was kind of feeling the same amount of like economic burden. And so the one thing that was, that honestly brought me to Omaha, in addition to the school and the department, which is lovely, was the house prices. I'm like, hey, this is so <laughs> cheap. I can afford to live here. And prior to that, I was in Vancouver. So I was going from Vancouver to Jersey, which have astronomical house prices. And it just, it really kind of calmed me down because for me and personally, kind of just going back to like, just knowing what your weaknesses are. If I'm happy as a person, I will flourish in all parts of my Mm -hmm. life. And a lot of that has to do with economic stability. I need to love where I live. I need to be comfortable. And I can't feel like I'm making ends meet every month. And so that had a lot to do with where you go and the allure of that department too. But that, what I wanted to kind of add to was this idea of service. So I don't want to loop all of you all in, into my mindset, but as a student, I had no idea what they considered service. So I knew what service was in a way that you knew, but like going at your first year assistant prof, I had a lot of questions. I'm like, so is this service or is this part of my research? Is this So just knowing very transparently what they consider service what kind of service is important to them because you could be doing a lot, but the department could care less unless you're doing A, B, and C. Mm -hmm. 
And so just getting that really out of the bat, because I know my university apply application is really important to them. So they want you really out there in the community. Whereas let's say another university service would more be an, on an editorial board or something like that. So just have that idea because it's going to be part of your tenure and you just have no idea. And it really varies across universities too, and across departments as well. I never realized, I guess, that it varied that much, but I've never really talked about it before. So yeah. Yeah. I didn't either. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the more and more Jose and I do this podcast, the smaller and smaller we realize that the criminology and criminal justice community really is. And so we've brought this up. It's possible that you're applying to jobs that your friends are applying to that your spouse or significant other is applying to, et cetera. And so do you have advice for how to navigate applying and interviewing at the same schools or departments as your colleagues, friends, significant others? Yeah, I, I mean, that's a loaded question for you. <laughs> <laughs> With your wife. Yes. By the date here. Sorry, Alondra. Yeah, no, you're good. Um, (laughs) That's totally different from what I have to contribute. So I'm excited too. So I'll say I had a little bit of a bigger cohort in my fourth year. So like six, seven of us were on the market. So we're all applying to the same jobs, right? But I think at least in a sense, we sort of took this approach of like, we're going to share all the ads that we see, like, hey, we'll post it on our group. Me, like, did you see so-and-so's hiring? So-and-so's hiring. So we would share in terms of what we were seeing in all the positions and we would listen to each other's job talks. And so it was super supportive. It didn't feel like it needed to be like weirdly competitive or like you need to hide stuff. Granted, we didn't also go around and say like, oh, well, what did they ask in your initial interview, right? I think everyone understands like those are certain boundaries in terms of at the end of the day, you are competing for a job. And like, maybe you don't need to share some of those intricacies of what you didn't know, right? So that other people have an upper hand. But I think in terms of your cohort, just I think approached it in the sense of like, these are the only people that know what you're going through. And Sadaf said like, this is, I think it's the most difficult thing that you do during graduate school. I would say close to dissertation. It's just so chaotic. And these are the only people that know what you're also going through. So I'd say just, you know, approach in a sense of like support each other, be there to listen. And like, I would call everybody crying and like, but also celebrating like, oh, I got an on campus. And so use that support system that you probably have been sort of cultivating throughout grad school to just get you through the market with your colleagues. Yeah, and I'm glad you, know, you went first because my mind is not different, but it's very the same. It may be a little bit more abrasive. And so I'll go ahead and warn you all now. It is what it is, right? You know, you think about it like, is it okay if we use adult language on here? It's okay? All right. Yeah, no, it's it. like a professional athlete. You got to think of the shit, right? Whether you are or not, you got to think it, right? And so with that being said, at the end of the day, you're paying your bills. At the end of the day, you bust your ass to get to this point to compete. At the end of the yeah, these are your friends, but people compete all the time. Look at attorneys. Look at professional athletes all the time. If they're your real friends, it doesn't matter. You understand the game if you enter into it, right? And so and I always say, is your student going to pay your, your student? Your friends are going to pay your, your bills. They're going to pay down your student loans, right? And the truth been told, you've been competing against them before grad school. Test scores, GPAs. Right, you compete for scholarships and grants, you compete for fellowships. You've been competing. It's an adversarial game, right? And so you have to be thick skinned in academia and understand like you get reviews, but it's not personal. 
Hey, it is what it is, right? You know, I always see these wrestlers. I grew up watching wrestling, right? So I'm not going to tell my age, but who the wrestlers were, but Hulk Hogan was one of them. And they just come to Memphis <laughs> and they wrestle. And he's like, well, they hate each other. They can't stand each other, right? They're fighting the ball for the belt. And you go to Burger King and they've been a Burger King laughing and talking and they're beating the cut up and having a great time, right? And it's kind of the same thing with academia. And you can support your friends and be communal while fighting for every damn thing that you worked hard for. And, you know, and I will say, talk about competing. I competed against my wife and I were competing. We had to be very targeted. We were up front to the places that we were talking to, the two of us. And, you know, like, what do you want to do? And, you know, and we had to, had to compete against each other even when we started applying for about 12 programs. At one institution where we don't have any money for him, but we have extra money for you. We'll give you a full ride here. You had to come in for her and come in and fight, right? And so at the end of the day, it's about economics and resources. And it's not articulate, but look, it is what it is, right? And, you know, at least for our household, we both want. We do a little bit different research, but off to the same pot. And so it's just, you know, being thick skinned and just knowing you got to go for yours, man. You got to shot when it comes to this and you can't really worry about people's feelings. And if you, and hopefully you have a cohort, like Alondra said, that's really supportive and you understand, but you know, that's not always the case. And even if that's the case, nobody did your dissertation for you. Nobody stayed up all those nights. Nobody cried. You know, you used to call your families during this time and hell, it's hard to have conversations because they don't get it. You do you, you get two years right in the damn article, you, how much money you get paid? I can't even tell them. I hope they don't see this podcast, right? And so I'll shut up because I'm going on and on. But you see, it is what it is. Don't feel away about it. You get one life, shoot your shot, man, and it's what's yours without stepping on others. And that's the best advice I can Oh, man, I wish I had that advice going into <laughs> So for me, I always thought of it as like your core and your periphery network. Your periphery network is your cohort, essentially. People, exactly what Alondra said. You're there, you're supporting, you're being there for one another, but you're also really selecting on what you tell them, what you don't tell them, and so on and so forth. Sorry, that's your periphery. That's the round, but your core is like your bestie. So let's say you're on the job market with your bestie. That's really different because while it's really important to have your support network, it's also a really tricky time, right? Like you don't want to hurt each other's feelings. So what I always emphasize and what I've always done, as with all relationships, talk about it and set boundaries. Like, hey, before you're going on the market, and if you know you're going on the market with like a best friend who's in your cohort at that time, like you've been with each other for the past four or five years, talk to each other. What do you want to talk about? What don't you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about the interview process? Do you want to talk about your experiences with a certain person who's been interviewing? Or do you not want to talk about that at all? And so if you just keep that open communication, you'll be able to be a little bit more comfortable and less likely to hurt one another's feelings. And at least that's how I went about it. I think I lucked out a little bit because I had no one in my cohort on the job market the year that I was. But I think I had other situations where maybe we were competing for the same fellowship or the same funding. And it was just like, just approach it with a lot of respect, a lot of care and a lot of sensitivity, just what you would want to hear. And if you have those boundaries set in place, then you're more likely to be able to kind of communicate it well. It's a tricky time, no matter how you kind of frame it, one person gets the job, one person doesn't. And aside from like all of the work that you do during your PhD, it's emotionally hard. So while it's not competitive whatsoever, I don't think as a student, I could ever say I never felt like, oh my God, like I wish I had that. And, Mm -hmm. or I felt really insecure in where I was because I saw someone else that was flourishing. And I think that's really normal. And I think that's, it's part of the job. It's part of any job, but I think it's a poison of academia in general. 
where you're just kind of always feeling like you're always going to have to be in competition, whether you are or you're not, the feeling is always there, but it's not. Individuals will land. You'll land, your friends will land eventually. So just really focus on your journey because the last thing you want to do is really to shake friendships up at that time or to like kind of push others down, even if you don't want to, as you're climbing up, because you don't know where people's emotional I guess, limits are at that time too. And I just can't stress it enough. It's it's a hard year. It's a hard year. So I really went it in a sl- snowflake way, I guess. I was like, oh, like, do you want to talk about this? Is this okay? And I was really sensitive to people who were still in my cohort who weren't on the job market, but ha- really wanted to get out, but they just weren't at that position that I was at that time too, because you have to be cautious of their feelings too. They're looking at you like, oh, I wish I was there. And I'm looking at myself being like, I don't deserve to be here. So it's a different thing. <laughs> And yeah. the truth, and yeah. There's a great point. The truth be told, you're probably going to be competing in some regard, if you want to call it the word, quote unquote, for the rest of your careers for you know, funding and hell, even opportunities. And so it's, it's healthy competition. And you're right. Conversations in up front, setting boundaries. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you know looking out for yourself and your family and who you're responsible for. There's no easy way around it. No, absolutely. Don't sabotage yourself because your best friend is going for that same Oh, yeah. <laughs> You do your best. <laughs> Yeah, there was a time where it looked like Jen and I were both going to be on the market at the same time. And so we started having those conversations. There's a small part of me. So I was like, you know, I said, I'm coming back for another year. And so that was a big part of me that was just really disappointed in myself that I had to kind of make admit that I had to come back for another year. But there was also a part of me that was slightly relieved. I'm like, well, now I don't have to be on the market at the same time as Jen. And, you know, like, they're not necessarily the most pleasant conversations to have, <laughs> No, but they are important. And we even reached out to other people. And, you know, I think Alondra, I think, you know, Megan Mitchell, we talked to her and, you know, she kind of gave us some advice on how she handled it with some of her friends. And yeah, it's just, yeah, you got to talk to your friends that are probably going on the market with you because, yeah, but yeah, you should be warned. They're not going to be the most pleasant conversations to have like they can get kind of awkward but remember you're the shit i'm gonna take that with <laughs> yeah. me now and move forward so i think that's what's, what's gonna be the title of this episode yeah. <laughs> yeah. you're the shit go on the market <laughs> yeah. yep. you know it's funny i always get in trouble for cursing in the media and in class and stuff so it, 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 that's, that's actually go be befitting thing too is like your network or your support network while you're on the market doesn't necessarily have to be the besties who are your support network for the last five years right like things are going to change sometimes your peers can't answer your question at that time because they just haven't gone through it right and so it's kind of like the blind leading the blind so you got to pick and choose essentially who you're going to reach out to and what makes sense at the end of the day too and what you talk about with different people I always go back to I don't know if you guys have have heard of this book it's by Mario Smalls I think I'm saying it right. It's a really interesting book about the networks of graduate students, essentially who we talk to when we're in grad school and it's called someone to talk to. And I just, I'm teaching networks this fall and I'm assigning it to all of my students. And as it's not even curriculum, no, it is curriculum, but also just the idea of like emotional stability, like who you choose to talk to, what you talk to people about, it's going to change and that's okay. Alondra, do you have a, I want to make one more thing, but I want to make sure. No, go ahead. And I will say, to qualify my position, I came from leading in policing. You know, I met my wife and I was like, well, I'm leading objectives. And she's like, well, you're leading people. 
And I have to balance that throughout my life ever since she said it to me years ago. And so even when you're thinking about, you know, those that you work with, you know, you have to remember, unless your pot's filled, it's hard to help others. And so once you go through that process, now you go and you help and you guide and you mentor. And so we're not blind leading the blind and we have our bifold, right? And so I think that's important too, to, you can still give back and do these things, but you want to make sure if you don't have a pot to piss in, you can't provide anyone a bit of secret. And so I thought like my dad and all these things I'm saying, but it's just really, it really is true that you have to focus on your own so you can help others and help them lead and guide. And yeah, I know it's competition and you want what you want, but it's also about giving back. You can't give back if you're empty. And so I think, you know, we have to also look at it that way. It's delayed help, maybe. We want to see it that way. So, but encouragement, support, listen, a shoulder to cry on, you know, share your disappointments, you know, don't sabotage yourself. So I, I think it's a delicate balance that I hadn't figured out yet. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So now you're been invited to a job talk, right? You've been invited to come stand in front of a room and give a presentation. And so that this might've been different for you because, you know, like we've mentioned, you did it during the pandemic or like through the thick of it, but can you walk us through your job talk, how you maybe managed the time, how you structured it, and then how you handled the Q and A? Of course. So my job talk essentially, yeah, it was all over Zoom. That whole, it was a two-day interview that was just on Zoom, back-to-back meetings uh, with multiple people. We can talk about that (laughs) in another question. I always joke around after every break, I have a habit of when I'm really stressed, I just lie on the floor and look at the ceiling. (laughs) And that's what I was doing between every single interview. Now my colleagues will laugh at me, but it was exhausting. But essentially the talk itself, they had given me about an hour. And so how they advised me to, and it was the individual who was kind of walking me through and was inviting me to all great, great individual, super transparent, super welcoming with questions. And I did have a few. So it was 40 to 45 minutes of a research talk, essentially, whether that's about your dissertation, whether that's your dissertation and your other projects. So it's he gave me all of the flexibility in terms of what I wanted to discuss. And for me personally, I guess how I did it was, I talked, I think, 30 minutes or 25 minutes about my dissertation, the three chapters, just because I wanted to let them know, like, hey, it's finishing up, like, it's going somewhere. And then I spent a few minutes talking about the other projects I was on. And so, again, I had mentioned networks, like, you you work on a whole bunch of things. So I was like, hey, I'm not just interested in this substantive area. I'm interested in these substantive areas as well. And I've done work to demonstrate that I've worked in this. It's not just me coming me like, I'm interested in A, B, C, or D. I'm like, no. I've published on this. This is what I'm interested in. And I kind of took it as like, I want them to know as much about me because they need to assess whether I'm a fit for them too. Because it's so easy to think about it as a one direction, but it's so critical, right? It's reciprocity. You have to fit. They have to feel like you fit. And he didn't necessarily tell me that I should focus on teaching, but teaching is pretty important. It's part of what we do. So I spent about five to 10 minutes just talking about my teaching philosophy, what I'd like to teach. And just all of that. And so I think I ended it right at 45 minutes. And then there was about 15 minutes for Q&A. And Q&A was fair. It was fine. They talked about my dissertation. The one thing I had kept in the back of my head is really no one knows your work as well as you do at that moment in time. And so I had that. But also I was really nervous because you also don't know what people throw at you right? It's like that idea where you don't necessarily need to convince people who are on your side. You need to convince people who may be doubting it. And let me tell you, with networks, there are more people that doubt it. So I'm like, oh my goodness, where am I going with this? 
So it was a lot of just making sure that my job talk was framed in a way where they did come out being like, what is she talking about? But I also used that Q&A to give me an idea of whether I wanted to be in that department. Because if you're looking at me and thinking my work is absolutely not a fit for you, well, this is my research agenda for the 10, 15 years. I don't want to be there, right? And so it was a lot of thoughts. And I guess now that I think about it and I say it out loud, this is why I was really anxious through the whole process. There's like a million things going through my head at one time. But essentially, that's how my job talk kind of went through all Zoom. I'll say one of my biggest anxieties, right, you start having sort of initial interviews in like September. I was like, when am I going to go to a campus visit? Like, when do I need to have my job talk ready? Like, for me, that was a big anxiety. So I would advise you to start working on your job talks whenever you're in September. So my first interview was in early October. And I was like, oh, shit, like I thought it was going to be a little bit later. Like I thought I had more time. So it comes sooner than you think in terms of getting a talk ready. So I had prepared sort of like a general talk and then I went to a few places. So it was anywhere from like, you have 30 minutes to probably no greater than 45. And again, like you said, the people that are inviting you will tell you, hey, this is what we want to see. Solely research talk. That was my experience. They didn't want to hear about like teaching or anything like that. I didn't do teaching demos, but I think that was just the nature of the universities that I applied to. So being able to just tailor my job talk was kind of easy once I had sort of, this is a part of my dissertation, right? So my approach is I was going to present a part of my dissertation. I started my job talk with like, this is my research interest, my relevant experience, funding experience. I presented a bit of my dissertation, like a portion. They want to see your methods, your data, like you want to go like breath, like but depth into your dissertation. You don't want to like zoom through it or present this whole like mixed methods or where you don't really get to get into like the nitty gritty. Like they want to see a few research questions, talked about them, like, you know, your stuff, right. And finish up. And I would also end my job talks with like, this is my five-year plan, very similar. This is what I'm going to be working on. These are other projects that I'm doing. I had done some research about like internal funding at each respective university. I said, Hey, I'm already aware about the seed money. Like I'm going to apply for this. So that's kind of how I would wrap up my job talks. I think in terms of Q and A, I think it was all manageable. I mean, you do practice presentations as a graduate student, right, with your faculty. So in that sense, I would say it's similar, but again, nothing can help you prepare for it because you've never done this. Again, it's people that maybe aren't on your side or doubt you, but I will say, someone told me like, if you get an asshole person, like literally trying to give you an asshole question, well, that says a lot more about the department and the culture than it does about you, right? So if someone's trying to like, beat you down at a question, maybe reflect upon that and say, hmm, you know, do I want to work sort of in this environment or with people that are like this? That wasn't my experience, but that was sort of some advice that I got. And that was important for me in terms of preparing for actual visits. So I will say maybe a few things. So I had purchased like three outfits that I knew were like my go-to outfits because a visit can be like probably like two to three days. And so for me, like being able to figure out like, okay, this, I have three solid like outfits because I was flying to interviews and having that ready to go because there was a moment where I came back from one interview, I went home, I slept, I washed my clothes and then I packed for the next one and left the next day. So having like, this is what I'm wearing to all my interviews is like, (laughs) that was more important than you think it will be because that's one less thing that you have to worry about. Right. 
things that maybe you don't think about packing super glue. What if your shoe breaks a tight pen, <laughs> like first no. Yeah. Dead ass like a tight pen, like medicine, like anti-diarrhea medicines. I was prepared for like, what if I get like a stomach flu on a dinner and then I can't do my job talk. So I packed all sorts of things that maybe people don't think of packing. So if you need a packing list, hit me up. So that was packing advice. But in terms of preparing, as soon as I would get invited to an on-campus visit, I would ask for an itinerary because from there you can see, okay, I'm meeting with the dean, I'm meeting with HR, I'm meeting with the chair, I'm meeting with students. And so I printed out questions and I had them in a pad folio with little clear little folders. And so on the plane, I was looking over my questions. I had hard copies of my job talk. I had pictures of each person I was meeting where they graduated from their interest. One thing I can talk to them about. So I like don't freeze. And so everything printed extra copies of your job talk over email, like on a hard drive, like everything possible. So that was sort of the best approach to packing and preparing my actual materials and questions for on-campus visits. You know, I'll add a little bit, but I mean, I know, you know, you're absolutely right. And then think about the but having a bubble because you're trying to give a talk is not necessarily the best look. So I'll keep that in mind when I do more talks. I was lucky, you know, I've been doing a lot of public work since I've been a student. And so, you know, you know, you kind of get comfortable with it, but you're still nervous. And so the one thing I would say is like, do your homework reports. And the one thing too, you know, you want to be able to call people by name. And so, you know, it's not, it may be different different places, but they don't want you to be like, oh, Dr. So-and-so, so-and-so. No, you're a colleague and you need to act like one. And so, you know, you be confident, but not cocky and still be respectful. I say also learn about the students. In many places, students have a great voice or they should. And you want to know their research. Not everybody, but you want to be able to speak to those things. Call a few by name. That goes a long way. I will say, too, you mentioned about the asshole person, right? The Q&A. That's probably the most nerve wracking part. You know, the one thing I always do is I turn around, you know, what are your thoughts? Or maybe if, you know, you all hire me, there's something that we can crack together. You write those types of things, you know, humor and just, you know, kind of putting a volley of puns in the back has really been helpful. And being excited about your work, right? If you're not excited about it, why the hell should they be excited about it? And also, you know, don't become defensive when they ask questions, you know, and also take some time to, because, you know, I like to engage. It's not like, but it can come across as aggressive. I don't mean it in any way. I'm just, I'm like, this is so much fun. This is, I've been waiting all my life for this, right? To get up here and nerd out, right? And so, but you want to make sure you take time because oftentimes they'll answer their own questions, right? And so, so you will, so you allow them to talk and have the floor because they're actually thinking and processing all the stuff you just said. And the one thing I would say, don't forget to tell the story. How did you get to this research point? Personal, professional. So what I did was I talked a little bit about myself, my professional experience as a police officer and being a black man and being an officer, right? I talked about the importance of equity to me. I talked about how everything I do, I will always look at that. You know, it just is what it is being up front. But I also, I had four papers before I did my dissertation and I talked about the logic. 15 minutes. This is the logic. This is what I learned from this. I applied it here. I put together a tapestry, a book or a fabric to show where, how I got right here. And if you hadn't figured out everything, be upfront. This is where I'm at right now. I know where you're at, right? So don't be afraid to speculate, pontificate with caveats if you need to, right? Don't be afraid to bounce questions back and use it as an opportunity. Look, whether you get a job or not, this is an opportunity to make your research better, right? You know, you you have to always try to figure out what can you get out of it to make you actually better. And I spent 30, 40 minutes talking about the actual research and then taking a portion of time to talk about when I come here, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I need. 
And this is what I'm moving toward. And so, you know, those are, I know we're going to talk about some questions and negotiations and things, but besides that, that was really how I did. And I highlighted my strengths. I think I have a great empirical imagination that also gets me in trouble. And I have great quantitative skills that I was trained in. I'm not trying to be cocky, but this is, I'm the shit, right? You have no thinking the shit whether you are or not. And this is what I bring different. I'm a black man, a former police officer who does this type of disparity work. And I, I've been trained quantitatively. And I think big. So guess what? I'm going to highlight it. If you like it, cool. If you don't, it's not the place for me anyway. And we're both going to be unhappy. And so just really be yourself. Be confident. Like you said earlier, this is, you know the work better than anybody. And yeah, so just, you know, just tell your story. And you have, they usually have 10 minutes. You go to ASC in the morning. You got five, 10 minutes to talk to nobody and do it. And now you have this time. Relish it. Take this time. You may not have it again. So that's it. No, I was saying you're so funny because you went into it so enthusiastic. And you're like, this is my time to shine. The whole time during my job talk, I was like, I want this to end. I want this to end. I want this to end. So you're saying this. I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, amazing. And I think majority of people, I've heard a lot where it's like any presentation, they're like, you're up there. This is your time to shine. Any presentation I do from ASC to my job talk is like, I need this to finish. Q&A, I was like, this is great that you're all so interested in my work, but like, it's over. Time's <laughs> done. <laughs> Look, I'm not averse to a technical issue to the sort of time, so I'm not averse to anything. Right. And it was over Zoom too. Many times I was like, hey, what if my Wi-Fi went down? Right. The perspective where it's like, you might not necessarily be as excited. It's not like you don't yeah. want the job, but it's just like, sometimes I become very anxious. I'm generally not an anxious person. That job talk, I was like, I need this to finish. I need them to stop looking at me and stop listening up yeah. to me. And I hate it. <laughs> I agree. Like, I think the job talk is probably the most anxiety producing presentation, even besides a dissertation defense. I don't know why. I think because you're in a new environment. I remember I wasn't sleeping very well, like the night before, like, cause you have a whole day. Like if you go in person, it starts at like seven, 8 AM all the way through dinner. I remember my very first one, not sleeping. And I asked, I'm like, can I see the room before, like have some time to set up. And that was good. If you're able to get a little bit of time in the room to at least get your bearings, figure out where the audience will be. That was my tip. And having a hype playlist, like while getting ready to some music. But yeah, I don't think anything can prepare you for your job talk other than, I don't know, you just got to do it. You just got to do it. Rip the band-aid. Yeah. Absolutely. I was just going to say, you know, what you were mentioning, how do you say it? Is Sadaf or Sadaf? How do you say it? I don't want to mispronounce your name. Sadaf. Sadaf. Okay. I, I can barely say my own name, so just know that. Uh, that's why I said Thad instead of Thaddeus. But I will say it's like any great performer or great athletes, they always say, you know, they're so nervous. Your Michael Jordans, your great performers and entertainers, they're so like, they're just so nervous. But what you said was you found that fortitude to push through, right? Because you have worked this hard. And even when you're in the classroom, it's a performance, right? You're performing, yeah. it's an artistry. And so doesn't matter how you feel on the inside, it's what you project. And so I thought, so that's when you said that, I thought that was just very telling that you feel that but you're able to push through. And I think that's a beauty of academia. Sometimes it forces you to dig deep and find fortitude and resilience that, damn, I didn't know I had that. I didn't know I could do these things. And so, you know, oftentimes you're exhausted, but I think you all agree that it's very rewarding once it's finally over. Yeah, and my floor was my best friend at that moment. I was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
All right. So the final stage of the job market would be actually receiving that job offer and then going through negotiation. So how did each of you kind of approach this negotiation phase? Was there anything that was really important for you to ask? Did you have multiple offers and navigating the timing of those, those kinds of things? So when it comes to negotiation, I think the one thing that I just would like to always, now I tell people as much as I can, is go into it well, relatively well-informed. If you're going into anything, asking for something, have your notes in place, be informed. And so an example of that essentially was, what is the first thing you think of when you get a job? What's the salary, right? And people are so prone to negotiate salary. That's the first place your mind goes to. But a lot of these universities have their salaries posted online. And so what you do and what I did personally is I went online and looked at the last three or four years and see what they were offering individuals who are getting hired at my rank. And then I would compare that to what they're offering me. And that would tell me two things. Is there room to negotiate and whether I want to negotiate too? Because if you're pretty on par with what everyone else is being offered, even just maybe one or 2000 up and down just based on inflation, maybe you don't want to negotiate salary. Maybe you want to take that time to negotiate something else, negotiate a research stipend, negotiate course load or things like that. Just go into super well-informed. But I think one of my main things that was really important to me was I am a Canadian citizen. And Mm. so I really needed them on my side when it came to immigration. And so I talked to the director a lot. I wanted to make sure that they were going to lead my visa application and that they were going to just have my back when it came to that. And to that, get everything in writing. Everything. So even if you had this, had the most wonderful conversation with your director, with other people, and they're like, yeah, we can give you that. We can give you that. That's great. Let's get it in writing. Because everyone's awesome. And this has nothing to do with the individual. But people forget over time, right? And so if you have it in writing and if it's in your contract, then it's there. And the final thing, I wasn't there at that time to think about this, but I think now more and more, just comparing Canadian ways and American ways, is look into your your university's maternal and paternal. Something that you might not ever think about, something that you might not be thinking about now, but in Canada, we have maternity leave. In America, you guys are crazy. There, it varies. (laughs) universities, some universities have nothing. So think about it. You're just having a child and you have no time off. And if that's important to you, I'm not saying this is important to everyone, but just look into it. Be informed. If that's a process or a direction you want to go, just make sure you're informed as what's available to moms, what's available to dads too. And I think that would be the thing where I, yeah, look into that. (laughs) Yeah, I'll hop on because you kind of said some things that I was going to say and I'll just kind of like, just, I guess, give some more examples of of some of the things that you said, you know, I think it's important that everybody knows that you have to be realistic, understand the market, but you don't want to undersell yourself because your first salary determines your trajectory of salary. Mm-hmm. And so you want to get every plenty. You don't want to nickel and dime your way through a negotiation, but you want everything that's coming to you. I will say beyond paying benefits, you know, one thing I asked for was a first year buyout, a course buyout. I asked for a third year of buyout after my third year review. And I asked for a buyout following my tenure approval semester so I can reevaluate my life, right? And you want to go ahead and start thinking about these things now. First of all, I think it's, it shows you're thinking long-term. It shows them that you plan on being here, but it also lets them know what you need and what your intentions are. It's hard to ask for that without funding or something to offset it without 
down the road. Oh, I got tenure. Can I get a semester or a class out? They're going to get the hell out of here, man. Right. So you have to go ahead <laughs> and negotiate it. Negotiate it. Travel benefits. Our faculty gets travel benefits, but additional travel benefits because I need additional training. It's stuff I need to do. Right. And research startup funding, whether it's for GA, whether it's for technology, whether it's for STATA, or these types of things. And I was went as far as even specifying the classes that I preferred and, and requested more seasoned GA. I don't want a brand new GA. I want a GA at least a semester under their belts. Right. And so, you know, and also just those types of things. You know, you want to think about everything, your computer. I want this software. I want, I got the, a, a huge screen. I asked for anything I was getting. I got it. Or I need this type of processing. You know, you want to ask for this type of test that I need. If you know, they may say no, but you want to try to negotiate the things to make you comfortable. Because if you're working in a public institution, you're probably not going to get rich by starting off. So you need those friends things and your time. <laughs> your time is your currency. So you want to negotiate your time. I think that's really some examples of what you were saying earlier about, you know, research buyouts and those types of things. So, you know, if you can think of it, get with your advisors. You know, for me, I'm negotiating with the people who taught me how to negotiate in, uh, in there. So that's very funny, right? And I remember we got to a point where we negotiated as a household. We both negotiated with our department at the same time. And so, you know, legally, they can't talk to both of us. And we're like, hey, this is what we're trying to make in a household. How can we make this happen? And so, you know, you just have to figure out what hand you have to play and then go for what you want. It may not be monetary. Because mind you, some research is more attractive than others, unfortunately. I got lucky because everybody cares about police. And five years ago, nobody gave a damn about it, right? And so, and probably five years from now, they won, right? And anyone who's you know, doing victimology, you know, just maybe five years ago, they're like, mm, and now it's like, oh, places like Sam Houston open up centers, right? That never, you never would think would happen before. And so, you know, you just have to know the market and use that market to, for your negotiation advantages. And so I'll leave it at that. Yeah. So earlier I said, answer your phone for initial interviews. So once you come back from campus visits, I would not answer my phone because I knew that there were going to be offers. And for me, like if I answer the phone and it was an offer, I knew I was going to be frantic and I was going to say something dumb or I was going to say yes. And like, you know what I mean? (laughs) So I didn't, I took the approach of not answering my phone immediately. Like I saw so-and-so's calling me chair and I would let it ring and I'd let it go to voicemail. And I'm like, okay, this is probably an offer. Let me think about what I'm going to say. So that was actually very helpful for me because I can be kind of erratic, like on the moment. So, I mean, take it for what it is, but I wouldn't answer my phone. I would let it ring because I got a couple of offers and I had to sort of navigate what that looked like. So I got an offer very early on in the market, but I had other interviews lined up. And so I was forthcoming, right, with my offer. I said, hey, you know what? I'm super excited about this. Thank you so much. Like, I'm honored. I'm, you know, excited. But I do want to let you know that I have already sort of set up another interview, like travel arrangements have been made. I took the approach of being honest, right? And saying, like, this is what it is. Like, I just want to let you know where I'm at in terms of my timeline, only because I literally had already made travel arrangements with another university. And so they were actually very receptive to that, right? Me being honest and saying, like, I'm going to go on another interview. They're like, go ahead. I didn't get like a set time of like, this is how long your offer is good for. So I actually had an offer for a few weeks. So I went on the one that I already had scheduled. But then during that time, I got more. I got like two or three other campus interviews. And this is what I said about you need to sort of play your cards or sort of figure out what you want and weigh your options, I think, because it came to the point of deciding like, okay, I've gotten this offer. And then another one came through. Are these my top two choices that I'm going to reject 
other on-campus visits, I was scared of like holding on to offers too long or trying to like keep playing the field to where you're like, oh, what if I lose what I have? And so it's kind of a delicate balance and I don't think there's an answer. I think you have to sort of go with your gut instinct and your experience with the universities. And if you want to keep going to other visits, but maybe lose an offer, I don't know. So I ended up not going to the rest of my visits beyond the one that I had already made those travel commitments that I was very forthcoming about. So I advise you to do that. And then in terms of negotiating, I also was very would tell people like, oh, can you email me or can we do this in writing? Like, I didn't like to do things on the phone. But I think also people that are negotiating with you don't like to do things like on hard copies either way. Also, some advice that I got that was really great is ask for the world. No one's going to rescind a job offer because of what you're asking. They're Mm going to tell you no. So ask for the salary that you deserve, right, after you've done your research. Also, in terms of this last job market, everyone was interested in hiring a person of color. It was like so sexy and everyone cares about race and diversifying. And so take it for what it is, like in terms of being sort of tokenized or like only you can benefit from being tokenized. I'll tell you that. Like you're not going to tokenize me. I'm going to tokenize myself and I'm going to ask for all these things. and I'm going to use that as a bargaining chip ultimately. That was sort of my approach to that. But yeah, so ask for the world because no one is going to tell you no. They're just, they're not going to take away your offer because of what salary you asked for. I think you both mentioned great things. Base salary is important. Another thing that I negotiated and asked for is I need to teach a summer online class before I get there because I'm going to graduate in May. Mm. I'm not going to have any income. And so how am I supposed to live? So that was important for me to negotiate. I'm like, I need a summer class that I already have prepped so that I can move and not worry about how I'm going to live. So that was something that was important to me besides course releases, of course, extra professional development money, graduate assistance, all of those good things. But for sure, that summer money was very important for me to have at least, you know, as myself in terms of my financial situation. Oh, and I didn't have to move. But I think if you're moving to out of country, <laughs> out of state, you know, out of your city, I think it's important to see if they have moving expenses or some, some type of aid. And if the department doesn't have the money for it, maybe university does or some type of nonprofit, just try to work that angle because, you know, we're broke coming out of students. You know, it doesn't matter if you're married, it doesn't matter if you're working another job, you're broke. You're broke because you're tired or you're broke because you're your pockets, right? You know, and so you just want to see, try to get all those things that you want. And, and I just kind of build on the last question. So, 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 so that, is that correct? Yes, that's fine. <laughs> all right. I got it right. My God. You can have the last word on this, but you know, you're talking about having multiple offers that to your advantage, but be truthful because academia is small. Don't say, oh, I was offered this and come to find out. No, you went off of it. Now they're a liar. Got it, yeah. right? And so, but you want to use that to your look. I have, I have another place to press because of these reasons. And if you're not asking for anything, just be upfront. You'll be surprised at what little nudges may come your way if they really, really want you. It may come as far as a stipend. Oh, well, you know, we'll give you a class off. Or we'll give you an online class at Harvard. You never know moving expenses. So you just want to try to like, just try to be upfront and not necessarily you want to negotiate in better terms, but even if it's just for like, listen, this is a life decision. And most people at academia understand it because they've been there. And so that's one beauty about academia is that the process hasn't really changed as far as how it goes. And so at least you get some empathy and sympathy, I hope. 
I, I totally agree. That. It's such a small network of people that you never, ever, ever want to lie because the truth will always come out. People talk. People talk when they have had a few drinks at ASC. <laughs> Department heads talk. <laughs> Be aware. And that is why you should lead everything like with respect and with caution caution and just know that anything you say could get back to someone else too. So just be really respectful along the process. But Alondra, I love the idea that you mentioned this idea of it's such a hot commodity to hire a person of color. It's become, it's become a thing that universities are increasingly looking for. And I think being a person of color now, and I don't know what the right answer to this is, but I just want listeners to think about this question. Do you want to be the first one in your university? And do you want to be the only one in your university to do that? And the answer could be yes. The answer could be no. That's such a personal decision. But think about it. Whether that is a person of color, you're the first person, or whether that's your research discipline or your research area or anything else, do you want to be the first? And I think, yeah, I've just been thinking about that a lot recently too. And I'm like, I wish I would have thought about this a little bit more a few years ago. Yeah. I love that you pointed it that way because I think you're right. I think that's such a personal decision. I don't think we talked about it too much in terms of the questions, right? But at least in the last job cycle, right? So many people were interested in like, do you study race and crime? And right. It's like coded language to say like, we're looking for like a woman of color, a man of color on our faculty, right? Like that was such a, like I said, a hot commodity. And I think like when you're meeting with the chairs, with the deans, you know, say, like, when did you start caring about how diverse your faculty Mm. was? Was it summer 2020? Like, since when were you invested? And I would ask, okay, you're going to hire me, I may be the first in your department, right, that is, you know, a Latina professor, what are you going to do to retain me? Like, what strategies, like, you hired me, but how are you going to support me? Like, do you have a caucus for faculty? How do you support your graduate students of color? Like, those are all questions, right? Like, being myself and my identity and my positionality in the market and what they were looking for that I was forthcoming about, like, because I'm not stupid, right? Like, I, I know why, like, this is obviously also important to you, but it is to me on this flip side. So I love that you framed it in that question. Do you want to be the first? What does that mean to you? And what does that look like? And everyone's answer is different. So I love that. Yeah, I'm a Middle Eastern woman from Afghanistan. Most likely I'll be the first in any department. But it was just so interesting, some of the reactions or the questions people would follow up on, even of maybe not even an interview, but your peers or your colleagues. And that's so telling, right? And it's hard. It's on one hand, I don't necessarily study race. I dabble into some things. I think it's hard not to study race now, too, because everything intersects with race. Absolutely. It's a systematic thing. But to say I'm a race scholar, I would never. And so when they think of it or when they bring that up, just because you're a person of color, you're like, you don't want me to study race because I haven't thought about this for the last 20, 30, 40 years like Mm -hmm. some of my peers have. Right. So just because I fit this mold does not necessarily mean I will fit this mold. Right. And so it's just it makes you think. And it also made me think that of both of you, you talked about retention and a lot of it with policing right now, too. It's it's easier to hire a person of color in policing. But the trick is, can you retain them? Right. And that's with us, too. It's easy to get someone on board to kind of throw everything they want, give them what they want, come on our faculty. But can you retain that individual in two, three, four, five years? And I think that's something that department heads who really want change and deans need to think about 
as well too. It's not just the hiring, it's the retention. I look, yeah. I know we got to move over. Oh my God. I asked that question when I first, am I just a token? Because I don't see many other faces. I first got in the department of student, I didn't see other black guys, with other men and anyone else that was black. Things changed in the student body and they were making moves. So I knew they were really moving toward it. But I asked them, am I the token? And basically it was like, no, I don't see it that way. I see why you say that, but we have to start with somewhere, with someone. And they've made other moves to like back it up. But I wish I had a thought about that in the conversations. Georgia State is a university that many students come from the same backgrounds and or look like me or, you know, in some regard, right? Recommendation letters, the counseling, the additional stress from being non-traditional. I would have talked about that. I would have thought about that more in my workload, but I've always been upfront with it. So I'll just tell you a quick story. You know, we talk about going into the market, but don't stop advocating for yourself once you get into the office. And so we created this course, Reimagining Criminal Justice, I mean, the justice system. And I taught it two times, but mind you, I'm a race scholar, I'm a black man. I can't get away from this shit. I told them, like, listen, I can't teach this class anymore. This can't fall on me. This has to be, it's a great thing that we're doing, but this is an emotional burden for me. And I do research on racial differences and police related fatalities. Each data point is a person. And we talk about it now because, you know, you're so attached to it. And then you have students that you want to give your all to because you know you're the only person standing in that gap, but you're only one person. And so I think, you know, we need to have these conversations, not only when we're going to the job market, but being mindful of that it happens continuously as we go through it to protect your mental health because you deal with things that others don't deal with. Like I said with my wife, oh, you know, we're black and we deal with this. It's like, no, but I'm a woman. I'm like, damn. And I started watching things. I started watching when we present together how people may act toward her or act toward me. And, hmm, right? And so it's important that we have these conversations and that we have these conversations at the job talking, ask questions about this. And then as you're going through, protecting yourself and being making the thing because this may not be for you, but this is, I'm going to need this. And I'm going to need to be able to call audibles based on what I'm going through in my life. And, you know, and I'm not saying that should be, you have to have your own truth. You got to be dealing with, it, deal with your, your non-negotiables. But for me, you know, I've done it before. You know, we'll go back and live in Jamaica and, and give off the land like we've done once before. And I'll be fine. I've said that because we came here to get what we want, but we don't want to be those tokens and doing all the tokens. Everything that's black, yeah. every community that's this, every black student, every other student, Ah, and so always advocate for yourself in the market and beyond. And don't yeah. be afraid to look in the public sector, right? Uh, don't, agree. don't be afraid to look and talk about academia, but the same truths apply there. The work that we do in those spaces are greatly appreciated and you make a great difference. And so just think about what difference it is that you want to make when you decide to go in the market. And when you're there, you know, always reevaluate, is this my truth? And I definitely would shut up on that point and then leave it alone. <laughs> It's y'all's fault. You you motivated me. I I don't want to continue this conversation for longer than it needs to be, but I just want to just kind of emphasize the importance of always having time and giving yourself the space to reflect, to reflect on where you are as a scholar, as a person, and your identity. And I think it's so easy as a grad student to be like, hey, I got a job. My life is set. But it's I just finished my first year as an assistant prop. Things that I think about now were things that were not even on my radar when I was on the job market. And it's because I've given my space this past year and I've been forced to reflect too. Like I came from Newark, New Jersey. Like that's where I did my PhD. That wasn't by chance or that wasn't random. I chose Newark for the demographics. I chose Newark for the culture. I chose Newark for everything it had to offer. Like that was a selection that I made. Then I came to Nebraska, Omaha. 
right? Omaha, we're this little blue dot in this red state, right? (laughs) And so what does that mean in terms of the student body? What does that mean in terms of your peers? What does that mean in terms of the larger culture? And these are things where it's great. I'm so happy where I'm at and I'm so happy it worked out, but give yourself some time to reflect on what being the only person that does something means for the university and what how that reflects into the larger population and larger demographics of where you're going to be situated and embedded in. All right, yeah, that's great stuff. But unfortunately, <laughs> we do have to move on to probably Sadaf's favorite part, the last question. <laughs> that you can go lay on the floor for a few minutes. <laughs> oh my goodness, I know. I'm a preacher. I've become a preacher. It's not being students. Oh, you got to cut that out. That's right. <laughs> Right, so, I'm not going to talk. I'm done. <laughs> <no>. <laughs> okay. So, and Alondra, you've talked about this a little bit, but so what's the summer look like between you've accepted your offer and the semester doesn't start for a few months? Alondra, you mentioned you negotiated a class so you could make some money during that downtime, but just kind of maybe give us like the quick and dirty of how you navigated that sort of transition period of summertime. So, Daf, you can go first. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking to the spot. Sorry, sorry. We zoned out. <laughs> no, no. So for me, I had to finish relatively early just because of university policy at Rutgers. So I finished in March, essentially. And so that gave me a lot of time between March and August. But the fact that I was moving, that kind of creeped into my time. And so what I did was, honestly, from the day that I defended for two weeks, I did not think. I just did not think I put away everything. I did the bare minimum answered emails and things, but I just needed time to just reflect and to just give my head some time. It had been like two months where it's like high pressure. Even if you're not doing it, it's on you, right? You're thinking about it constantly. And then I had promised myself that I wouldn't look into housing or I wouldn't look into anything Omaha related until I had passed because, you know, grad school insecurities, right? You just never know. And so I had about two months to look for a place to move, to do all of that. And so I ended up just filling my two months with that and just tying up loose ends because the last two months I hadn't done much on other things. So talking to students, finishing up some research stuff that I had promised people, tying up some papers, and then I ended up moving. And then after the move, I spent about a month in Canada before I started and just kind of vacationed and had time to reflect and just enjoyed a little bit of my life. Although like I would still work from here too, but there's just something beautiful about knowing you don't have to work, but you want to work. Whereas the last six months, it's like, no, no, you don't want to work, but you have to work. Right. And so that's where my headspace was before I started. Yeah. I messed up. Well, not messed up, but (laughs) I finished my dissertation in the summer. So I went right into, I, truthfully, I probably should have waited an additional year, but I was like, man, screw it, man. I'm tired of getting paid little money for the stuff I'm doing on my damn balcony anyway. So, you know, might as well make extra money. But the one thing that I didn't take a break, I wish I had, a, we had still hadn't had a vacation. That was the summer of 2020. You've been writing, you've been grinding, the COVID pandemic, not much going on. And so it's hard to have work-life balance. And so I didn't do it, but I think it's important to not just stop old turkey right? And work when you want to work because you're going to be doing plenty of work. It's not glamorous on the other side. And it's not to scare anyone away, but to set realistic goals, like we grind, right? It's not, it's just, we're well paid graduate assistants for the most part that lead our own research. And that's the, that's the truth. And you grow when you mature into it. So I would suggest, you know, take some time, 
but keep things moving and organized. And so you can know when you hit the ground running, I can start on this. So game plan and relax and then enjoy this great accomplishment and don't make the mistakes of that. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I also finished kind of early because of university policies. I defended my dissertation in March. It's so similar to what you said. I could not think about moving because I was like, what if I don't pass my dissertation defense? Like, so that was in the back of my head. Like when literally if you're defending, it's because like you're ready. There's no world and where your advisor lets you defend, right? Unless you're not going to pass. But so yeah, same thing. So I didn't really feel like I could come visit Orlando and look for housing or do anything until I defended. So I did that, looked for housing in April, May, same things, sort of wrapping up projects. And I had a big graduation party and celebrated with my friends and family. I've taken some time off. I went on a cruise like out of Orlando with my partner and, but I'm teaching this online class. So that's been kind of nice because it's very low maintenance. It's a class I had prepped, but also gave me a little bit of like starter insight into like, I used to be on Blackboard at my old institution and now I'm on Canvas. And so that's been nice to get like sort of like the mandatory teaching trainings that you have to do sort of underway. So I do feel like I'm taking a little bit of a break, but again, working when I want to or when I need to, starting to do a little bit of like fall prep. Yeah. And just sort of moving things along and trying to sort of enjoy, I think, what's left of summer before August gets here, which is just disrespectfully close. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, that's what my summer sort of looked like since graduating. Great point. Don't wait till the fall to get your keys, your ID. You're absolutely right. Go ahead and get this stuff as soon as you can in the summer when nobody's there, because that can be a headache if you wait. See, I've done it. So there'd be a headache if you wait. So again, don't make the same mistakes I made. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you all for being here. It was a great discussion. It's a lot of great things, especially for the two of us that are going to be going on the market soon. Jen sooner than I. I'm Um, definitely going to be re-listening to this multiple times. So thank you to all three of you. (laughs) Then reach out if you need anything. I have a lot of just resources I've saved over time that I'm happy. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And where can people find you? I know we mentioned like Twitter, but do you have like other venues like email, ResearchGate, Google Scholar, all that jazz? Yeah, Yeah. so I think for me, I have Twitter, Sadaf underscore Hashimi. I think that's what it is. That's how dedicated I am. (laughs) (laughs) Account. Um, I have an email, shashimi at universityofomaha.com, but I think I'm pretty searchable. Google me. (laughs) Okay. Same here on Twitter. Yes, same here. (laughs) okay great and we'll post all that stuff too in our website and episode description but yeah thank you again we really appreciate it and we hope to talk with all of you again in the future hey hold on hold on one second alondra we need to talk because i think you know so we're we're still recording okay (laughs) Okay. yeah so we need to talk we need to talk though right but you know it's fun talk but you know it'd be great to catch up so yeah we'll catch up all right sorry awesome thank you everyone hey thanks for listening don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy@gmail.com. at gmail.com. See you next, See you next time. time.